Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Palaganis and... Peter Kahn. So, Peter, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Tony Sindelar, who is the Senior Instructional Designer and Teaching Consultant at MGH, the Institute of Health Professions. Welcome, Tony. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Janice. Hi, Peter. I'm excited to be here, too. So Tony has been working more and more, probably more than ever, I should say, but I need to ask you about that with faculty, getting them uh, up to speed and comfortable with teaching online. And you've just recently released a new video series, which I've watched over the weekend, The New Normal, which is really cool. And uh, you are just kind of my go-to person every time I've got instructional designer online learning, what type of equipment. Uh, And so I'm just so excited to have you here and kind of share your intellect with the world of faculty educators who need help with online learning because we're all being asked to do it. This is, uh, well, it's, it's an exciting time. It's, it's a time, it's a time in higher education right now. (laughs) It's something. (laughs) I have to ask you, Tony, what is your take? Because I feel like it, your job over this pandemic has probably been so busy and burdensome, yet the pandemic has, I'm, I'm guessing, has also helped your job in a, in a really interesting way, pushing agendas forward that are, you know, at least in my case, rather difficult to move before the pandemic. So how are you making sense of, of what it's done with your job? I don't know if I'm making sense. Things are very different. It is, you know, I've been an instructional designer, instructional design adjacent for basically my whole adult life. And there's always been an element of kind of uh, toiling behind the scenes and being like, if only people understood what instructional design was, if only they they knew who we were and were were seeking us out. And what we got that. So... (laughs) Which is like, not like this, not all at once, not everybody. So it kind of went from being uh, very behind the scenes to suddenly everyone knowing who we are and seeking us out for help. And, you know, we've been fortunate, you know, one of the things that Jeremy Institute is a, is a small school that's very committed to teaching. And uh, I do work with a lot of faculty compared to uh, at other schools where instructional design might be uh, less prominent or there just might be fewer of them compared to the number of faculty. Um, but it has, we are in a new world now where uh, everybody knows about instructional design and, and, and wants it for their, their online teaching that they have now have to do. No, online teaching is no longer a interesting curiosity, but the world people live in. I, I wonder, because this is a time when I've learned to parse some of the different roles that people like you provide. Mm-hmm. And I'm just to test my own clarity and also to sure. listening. So instructional design, instructional technology, course builder, course developer, we're what are the, the gradations there and where do you see yourself falling? 
So some of those gradations are going to be different at different institutions. So that's worth uh, reminding uh, ourselves and, and any potential listeners. And that's something I've had to think about uh, in the past when I've applied for jobs, when we've been interviewing uh, potential instructional design candidates uh, at the Institute. Uh, those titles can mean uh, lots of different things and even very different things under the same title, which is confusing, right? Uh, but frequently you hear about instructional design versus instructional technology as kind of, or instructional technologists specifically as the two kinds of areas. Uh, and uh, instructional designers do lots of different things at different schools here at the Institute. We're very much in kind of a coaching role. Um, we're very much uh, across the uh, across the teaching uh, that, that faculty might be doing. So uh, we work with people helping them think about active learning and designing things for the classroom, as well as doing things online, doing things in a learning management system, where I, was, I would say that many schools, uh, organizationally, they might have a team of instructional designers that are just dedicated to their online college or their online continuing ed programs. And so they'd be very focused on the, uh, the learning management system uh, kinds of things. But there does tend to be kind of a delineation between, say, instructional designers to have a advanced degrees in education uh, versus people that might do kind of more media production uh, types of things that might have other credentials or, or other things. But I will tell you, there's a lot, I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of different people who have different specialties under the category of instructional design, especially back uh, in my more IT side of things, there tended to be people who was like, well, I'm an instructional designer, I work on web pages all day, or I'm an instructional designer, I do a lot of graphic design, or I do a lot of AV editing, uh, and they'd be doing it in an educational context, but it it can mean lots of different things. There's instructional designers who spend all day in a learning management system. There's instructional designers who probably spend all day teaching workshops. Um, so it can mean lots of different things. So I don't know if I uh, helped with anything in terms of clarity there so much as introducing more confusion. But for so. you, you do mainly faculty development and yeah. helping them and introducing them to new technology, right? Yeah, and that was the kind of the need that the Institute had that kind of kind of brought me here uh, was I do a lot with kind of helping faculty uh, think about their teaching. Sometimes that's technology, sometimes it's not. Um, I do a lot that's not necessarily technology related uh, or it's, it's you know, we might have to implement it in D2L, but we spend a lot more time thinking about the strategy and the goals and uh, how we're going to accomplish that and what students need to be able to do regardless of where that's going to happen, whether it's in a Zoom session or in a classroom or in something in D2L, yeah. In general, Tony, when you're working with faculty, you have this great sort of diagnostic tool for everything that we've missed in our doctoral education or our preparation for the faculty role. So what are most faculty missing when they come to start teaching? I think a lot of faculty, uh, when they first start working with me, you know, especially, you know, we work with a lot of people who are, they're coming, say, from uh, clinical experience and they're coming to the Institute and need to start teaching. I mean, they probably have been working as an educator for some time in a clinical role, but now they're going to be an educator in the classroom. And that's the new version of their role. And it's always, you know, instructional designers were required by law to talk about backwards design once a day or we get in trouble. Um, it's, it's that thinking about what your goals are. Can you articulate your goals? Can you think about where your students will be and not the what content am I going to cover? How am I going to fill time in class, right? Uh, that That's always the kind of big thing that I think I, I have a, a lengthy conversation with kind of people coming into the Institute, taking over a course or designing a new course or program. It's like, what are you actually trying to accomplish here? What are, what are the things a student needs to be able to do before they can go out and be a practitioner and not just what does the textbook tell me to cover or what do I think I need to cover? 
so I feel like your role is it's like double fold. It's <laughs> you can teach someone how to um, you know set up, let's say, a learning management system page um, from the shell that you provide or whatever. But there's more to it than that. When you're doing faculty development, it's it's like motivational coaching at the same time, trying yeah. to them comfortable. Um, so what have you learned from the different personalities and the different skill levels of the faculty mm-hmm. that you've been doing? Yeah, I think I, I like that coaching and I've used that a little bit more in my own, uh, how I describe my role to faculty who I'm going to work with. It, you know, that's not a kind of word that I would have, I think 10 years ago, I probably I don't know if that's it, uh, but it is very much that kind of trying to guide and help and be kind of on the, on the sideline, uh, giving them some directed feedback at specific intervals to help them move forward. And, you know, I think the big thing is, you know, giving people the information that they need at an exact moment is like really hard. That I think is a skill in my teaching and my coaching and all of these things I've tried to, I'm really good at giving you like, here's the 55 things that you could be doing differently right now. And that is not useful for anybody. Uh, and it's much better to be like, here are the three things that you should try and work on uh, this week. And yeah, it, you know, it can take lots of different roles, whether it's thinking about what they're doing in D2L, what they're doing in the classroom. Uh, I did a lot in my first couple of years here with, uh, I think a lot of people were struggling with presentations and that was kind of identified as like, this should be an area to pr- potentially try and help people out with is making their PowerPoint presentations less dismal and dreary. And so I did a lot of work around that. But I mean, I think one of the kind of exciting things things is uh there's lots of different aspects to teaching that can be improved that's one of the things I like about teaching is you're never done like there's always other stuff you could add and things you can revise things you can take out things you can improve on uh and I think I uh one of the things I really like about the institute is faculty here are really committed to their teaching they want to do better they want to figure things out they want to uh meet their students needs uh and they are committed to putting the time and energy into it which is I don't know it makes them very enjoyable to work with in addition to being senior instructional designer and teaching consultant, you also teach at the Institute on yep. an online course for health professions, education students. So how does being a faculty member help you when you go back to this coaching world? Does it make you more sympathetic or do you think this is so easy? Why can't they get it? I don't know. It, it, it's not that. Uh, I think that being, you know, that that is also probably a big uh, delineation is instructional designers who teach and those who don't. Uh, and I have always found that uh, a really critical part of my uh, of my work as instructional design. I, I don't think that is particularly common as the field has gotten kind of broader and more professionalized, which is which is fine. Uh, I was fortunate to, enough to start teaching at a very young age. I, I started basically piloting an undergraduate course while I was in my final semester of being an undergraduate and uh, stayed on and taught that course for many years as a graduate student and then came to the Institute and teach a, a graduate course in the Health Professions Educator Program now. And for me, it's like, I need to do that. And that's like, that's the, that's like keeping me honest as an instructional designer of like, am I following my own advice? Am I learning all the things that the learning management system can do and actually trying them and seeing where the, what's easy to do, what's a limitation. And it's, you know, it's some instructional designers can be very theory focused. And to me, it's like, you got to have theory and practice together or it's not real. So uh, I, I mean, the, the opportunity to teach is something that I sought, uh, sought out because I felt like I needed to keep, keep me grounded and not just be operating in a theoretical space. So, Tony, I have two questions um, for our listeners that are faculty. How would you suggest they go about feeling comfortable with online learning, especially those that are not digital natives? 
That is, uh, I think there is in non, in a non kind of rapid switch to uh, online learning, I think I would have a different set of suggestions that maybe aren't relevant now, which is hard just because we don't have the timeline. You know, I, I think for somebody who was like, oh, I, you know, my, my, they've said like maybe my program is teaching is going to go online or, you know, my course might go online in a year and I'm kind of apprehensive about that. Something I've always encouraged faculty to do is seek out an opportunity to be an online student yourself. And I see that in my work with faculty, trying to design an online course, uh, whether it's a course you've already taught or a brand new course, if you've never been an online student yourself, is really, really hard uh, because you've never had that experience of what does it look like to structure materials? How do I structure a week? And you're just, you're very, you've been very tied to that, uh, that synchronous classroom experience where it's like, I'm used to doing it live in front of a room full of people, whether it was 15 or, or 200. And that's what teaching looks like to me. And the other parts of teaching maybe are less important to me or less visible to me or less salient to me or, or, or get lost. So that, that being an online student, I think is, is really valuable. And even, you know, I feel like a lot of people are just coping and making do and that's all you can do right now. Uh, this might be a time to think about if this is something that's going to be more present in your teaching career, which I think that's the big question mark in higher education is like, how quickly do we return to normal, whatever normal looks like, uh, or is are we going to have a lot more on online teaching and learning than ever before? Uh, seeking out the opportunity to be an online learner in some kind of context, I think, would be is a really valuable experience for everybody. And that does not have to be a three credit course through a degree program. That could be uh, a MOOC that you sign up for, a workshop that you do. I mean, I think even more people are doing things informally right now online that they would not have done before because they have to, right? People are having their, their book groups and their journal clubs and their aerobic sessions online. So seeking out opportunities to be an online learner yourself and thinking about what works and what doesn't work is going to make you, uh, I think, a better online educator. Um, I love that. I mean, that uh, one of the things that I've been kind of my, my big mantra lately is practice what you preach and embrace your hypocrisy. <laughs> so put mm -hmm. yourself in those situations. I love it. My second question is to any listeners who are instructional designers who might want to, you know, move into the faculty development space. Just having, you know, the experience that you have had during the pandemic and even before, what do you think is missing from instructional designer programs? Uh, I definitely thought for a while that, you know, that not, uh, not really any kind many, you can get a degree in instructional design without having to know, without having to do any kind of teaching, which I always thought was a bit strange, uh, but there are lots of instructional design roles out there that are a lot more kind of behind the scenes and, and media production-y. I will say, you know, from my own experience in, in graduate school and seeing which of my classmates were successful and which are not, and, you know, the pool of people I'm still in touch with, putting together a portfolio of, of things, of materials is a really big deal. And your a given program might not really require you to do that, but that was really what kind of set aside, I thought, the people who kind of were successful versus those that were not, is if you just did what the courses required of you you know you might have some stuff but it was important to have like here is like here's all the things I've collected here's the things I've taken and refined and to really kind of showcase what you can do be it uh, teaching be it assembling workshops be it designing and developing courses be it making various multimedia uh, 
products, but kind of going above and beyond kind of just what a, a course might require of you. Just, I think the nature of the instructional design is there's so many things within that, that programs tend to be kind of a survey and you have to pick and choose some things to go further than the, uh, maybe the basic course requirements. So I don't know, I hadn't thought too much about uh, curriculum requirements of that in quite a while. No, I, I know one battle that you helped wage when we pivoted to fully online was to promote more asynchronous teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And I, I just know from some of my friends in the ed tech world that they were sort of caught by surprise that everyone's default was let's just do the three hour lecture on zoom. I, you know, instructional designers across the U S and the world were like, what? (laughs) Like, how is that? Like, what, how did that occur to every, why, why was that the default? Because that just was a little mind boggling to us. Uh, But I I guess it, as a faculty member, I can, I didn't necessarily see it either, but I can mm -hmm. feel, I can empathize with the idea of you want to know your, you want that connection to know your students are learning. So Mm -hmm. why is asynchronous better and how can you Mm -hmm. keep that Mm -hmm. connection strong, even if you're not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think there's a lot in there to kind of unpack. I think it was somewhat boggling to instructional designers, just the idea that you would default into these multi-hour synchronous sessions and that those would be a positive learning experience. And I think that was just because we had the experience in developing material and we knew what you know, some people say student attention spans, I'll just say people's attention spans were like, probably a lot more of us had already done remote working and on professional development online. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it was one of those things where probably the people who made those decisions was like, well, think back to the last time you were in a one hour webinar, and what that felt like. And now you're suggesting doing a three hour version of that for your students every week, on top of the other things. And I think they weren't thinking of it that way. So uh, yeah, I definitely something I have pushed in my my discussions with faculty all this summer is this delineation between asynchronous and synchronous. So synchronous, what do you do in Zoom or whatever platform you're using in a kind of scheduled time each week? And I'm not saying don't do anything synchronous, but I think a lot of people were thinking of synchronous as the default. My perspective is that you should try and make sure that synchronous time is really well spent and not uh, just the kind of standard way we, we do stuff. In particular, doing non-interactive lecturing, and it's like we get to relitigate the whole is lecturing dead or not in academia, which is a, a popular thing to write opinion pieces about every two and a half years. Now we get to relitigate it in Zoom, but you shouldn't be doing long non-interactive lectures in Zoom, and lectures means different things to different people, but you shouldn't be doing long things that are not interactive in, in whatever your synchronous uh, web conferencing platform is because it's boring, because people disengage people lose focus and they are not learning and people think they're learning just because they're there and they're not uh, added to that people didn't you know really didn't have the the uh, ability to opt in or opt out or plan for online learning so people are in all these non-ideal learning spaces and cramped in apartments with lots of roommates and distractions and uh, background noises and not always the best wi-fi and all those things so synchronous i'm not saying never do it but use it with intentionality and and use it strategically and use it as a place to build community and have interaction and collaboration. I think the challenge is for people who had never taught online before, who had never taken an online class, they didn't really have a conception of what does asynchronous even look like then? What does teaching look like if I am not in a Zoom room with you talking at you? So, I so agree with you. And I have to say, Tony, the pandemic i've i've always been an advocate of well well part of my role was making sure that faculty time 
was effectively spent because I think there's a grand myth that if you push everything online, it's less time for faculty. It's actually, in my experience, double the time that I spent in-person courses just because you've got this community of practice that are texting each other and doing other things. So you have to constantly check and make sure that people are getting responses in time. And so it does end up taking up a lot of your time that isn't bulked together and you know blocked off on your schedule or whatever. So previously, you know, I, I thought, okay, everybody, if they're doing synchronous work together on Zoom, it should always be interactive. No one should be able to tune out. And I have to say, because the default at the beginning of the pandemic was, was these one hour, three hour talking heads, talking slides, I think people got exposed to that and thought that that was the way to do it. And then it became more and more and more. And I found myself actually appreciating it in a weird way because I could, and I know there's differing philosophies around multitasking and switch tracking and tasking and blah, 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 blah. But I actually liked having the one hour blocked off for lunch for a webinar to gain some new information while I'm checking my email and knowing that that webinar is going to be recorded and then doing it asynchronously mm-hmm. anyway, if I found it interesting to go back later. Mm-hmm. So I, it changed my thinking, like, oh, there is a little bit of value <laughs> as long as it's previewed that way. Mm-hmm. Because then what I realized was when I ran a webinar, people expected that I would just be lecturing and didn't, they got caught off guard that they'd have to actually do work on that. And so I think now people need to, we need to, as a field, define terminology. Like let's say, for example, webinar is the talking head, talking slides and workshop is interaction. And, and that helps set expectations for the learners. Yeah. I think there's kind of, it's interesting. I hear all these challenges of, of uh, faculty who are frustrated with student behavior on Zoom and, and what that looks like and what is okay and what is not okay. I even think one of the complaints I heard was somebody said like, well, you know, my student was folding laundry while watching my class. And I was like, sounds like what I do when I listen to a podcast. It's a good thing that people who make podcasts can't see me. <laughs> um, because it's like, yeah, that's what people multitask when they, when they, you're doing asking them to do something that's not very interactive and is very passive. Now you can see it. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter was she, you know, she was in a virtual class and she was like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't think that I had the video on and I was sleeping." <laughs> oh my oh no. <laughs> should probably not, you know, be out of bed. <laughs> We learned that when we had a, a large group event and when it was over, everyone signed off, except there are a few people who didn't sign off, which means mm. you figured out who was. They haven't been paying attention. They're off eating dinner, cooking. Yeah, something. You know, uh, Tony, you're also active on Twitter and I find your your musings quite wry and relevant. Okay, it's like what word's coming here? <laughs> Well, what do you, what is the role of social media? Because we talk a lot about the Zoom or the mm-hmm. um, LMS type platform, but where do you see social media playing into this 
health professions education? Um, I'll be honest. I don't know if my um, my use of uh, of social media connects in too much with my uh, my role as an educator or instructional designer. I do follow a lot of educators and instructional designers uh, on Twitter, and so it's really interesting to see what are people doing at other schools and and what challenges. I mean, it was very eye-opening. I mean, I, I think just the fact that the Institute did things over the summer, whereas many other parts of academia are in hibernation over the summer, and then the number of schools that tried to open this fall and and just failed. And, you know, I mean, there were things where there were various instructional design discussions that were like, it was like, if, you know, it felt like half of the conversations this summer were about like what grade of plexiglass to use. And it's like, I am, I do not care about this. <laughs> I am not part of this discussion. So um, I do, I do enjoy it as a way to kind of see what are other people doing and what are, it's one of the ways I, I keep current with technology is to see what are other tools that people are talking about in higher ed, in K-12, in, uh, in various clinical things. And, you know, what stuff do I need to go out and, and figure out? Because especially my role at the Institute as an instructional designer is not an IT role. But I still have to keep a little bit of my uh, my toe in that, and and you know that is a a topic I'm interested in as a I guess more as a fan than as a professional at this point. But knowing what technologies I need to stay up to speed with as as far as that, that's helpful to have a, a good community of educational technology or just even broader. I follow a lot of technology journalists and see what are they talking about uh, to know what should I be caring about. <laughs> Do you see it as a teaching tool? I know we've had faculty who ask students to keep blogs or mm-hmm. to post on Twitter during a clinical rotation experience. Mm-hmm. Is there viable there? Oh, yeah. And I've, I've worked with people who've done that, and I've done that in some of my own teaching in the past. I'm not doing that uh, currently, but I definitely think it's it's really valuable as far as that. Uh, I, one of my, uh, I've been talking, uh, I think we've ha- we're having kind of a resurgence of this idea. This was a big thing a couple of years ago as people would talk about the back channel, which is conversations that are happening while other stuff is going on, right? And this was a big thing at conferences is you'd go to a conference and you'd try and figure out there'd be some, uh, for a while it was all happening like underground informally, there'd be a hashtag or something like that. And you'd have to like agree on what it- it would be and there sometimes there might be multiple ones that would be clear which one's more popular and now it's like it's official and people will be like this is the hashtag for the conference but there's all the conversation happening about the conference while you're at the conference and i find that kind of thing invaluable and some people have brought that not just from the conference but like bring it into the classroom you know if you have a zoom session do you have a place where there is a back channel happening and maybe that's happening in your zoom chat Maybe it's happening in your students' text messages that you don't see. Uh, you know, I think there's. I think that those things exist, whether you uh, create or control them or encourage them. It's just a question of which ones do you, as the instructor, get a get a peek at, and that they are they're they're useful to have um, because things are happening in different ways. And I, I would like to see more people do more with. Um, with Zoom chat, for example, which is not really a social tool in that it's all locked down inside Zoom, but you know, as a place where students can ask and po- uh, answer questions without the instructor even having to necessarily hop in, in a way that like you couldn't do that, in, you know, easily in class unless you had some other technology um, back channel. So yeah, I'm 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 not personally using uh, Twitter that way uh, right now, but I definitely have used it in the past for those kinds of things. It's all about where are your students, what tools can they benefit from using. There's lots of different ways they can communicate and collaborate, and that's just another one in the uh, in the toolbox. Tony, do you have a favorite resource that you can share with our listeners? I know my favorite resources are what Tony Sindelar puts to. <laughs> oh, no. I will tell you, I will give you two. 
let me just Google them and make sure I get the names of them right. So two resources to throw out for you. Uh, one is the Educause Learning Initiative, uh, which is ELI, has this series of they're kind of like two page documents and they are seven things you should know about. And so if you Google ELI, seven things you should know about, you can get all these lists of documents and they have these for all these common learning technologies. And they're basically like, give me the two page, what do I need to know about podcasting? What do I need to know about virtual labs? What do I need to know about insert buzzword here? Uh, which I find are very useful. I use a lot of these in my course and in my teaching where it's like, students or anybody needs to know a little bit about this tool so they can go and learn more about it. They need to know a little bit about the technology. They need to know a little bit about what it would look like to use that in teaching and what the state of it is currently in, in use in higher education. Uh, and that is, those are just like, I don't know, they stumbled onto this. They've been doing this for more than a decade at this point. And I was like, seven things, two pages, that is a perfect format that is just like you can cover a perfect amount of density of information in two pages, uh, but also give people a really high level things. So that's a, a resource I, I like people to know about. Uh, and then- Tony, I see the number, the most recent one is seven things you should know about podcasting. There you go. So, uh, which probably has changed a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Another resource I use a lot, Brian Alexander is a futurist who I've seen speak uh, many times. He, he used to be around New England, but uh, I follow his blog at brianalexander.org. And he basically does a lot of writing about the future of technology and education and the future of higher education. He is very interested right now in like, what is the future of uh, higher education vis-a-vis uh, -vis the coronavirus and what is that changing and what will that be changing? And I think he he approaches that stuff in a way I don't know. Other people, I feel like, write more for like the headlines, and he's like, he, he, I think he approaches it in kind of a more scholarly, long term. What might this be doing? He, he does a lot of like, here's four different scenarios or for how it could play out, and we don't know which it could be, but you know, here's four possibilities. And I find that uh, his thinking about the future pretty interesting and insightful. I don't know too many futurists that are professionally <laughs> professionally speculating about the future. So that sounds yeah. like a dangerous occupation these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, I I find the um, these resources helpful, and it, it is encouraging that so many people are thinking about this because often in teaching it can feel like a solitary activity. But yeah. to know there are people like you and people who exist online or educause to help, I think really improves part of our mm -hmm. our role. So if, when I think about tips that we can take away from this conversation, I, I've highlighted a few themes that really stood out to me in your remarks. Tony, I like the idea of coaching. And I, I like how you talk about your own evolution, that we didn't always see ourselves in that way. And I think that's true of a lot of higher education. It really was, I'm covering content. I'm the expert. I have all this knowledge and I need to create a channel to just funnel that into someone else's head. And that's not helpful. But the coaching model, this idea of titrating out the feedback, the few things you need to think of at this moment, that's something that works for instructional designers and for faculty in working with learners. So really helping, that's a nice metaphor to conceptualize our role is the, the help on the sidelines. I think I was I was very resistant to it because I'm not a sports person. Uh, and I didn't really have a frame of reference for that, but it is a much more, it, 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 it feels perhaps a little at, at odds with the scholar persona, but I think it is a, a better model for teaching. <laughs> well, and anyone who tries the brain dump approach is going to realize pretty quickly 
that there's more stuff than there are hours in the semester. And that stuff is going to change by the time these learners have moved on. And so better to give them the sort of the nudges that they need at this time to be self-actualizing. The uh, other point I wanted to highlight is a very simple, but I think probably underused advice to seek an opportunity to be an online student yourself or fill in the blank if you're going to be you know, instructional designer, you said it helps to be a teacher. If you're going to teach an online course, it helps to have been an online student. So if you put yourself in that role, then you're probably not going to end up with these multi-hour synchronous sessions because you know you don't like that when you're in the learner seat. Uh, and so you have a bit more empathy and you think about ways to organize things. I know I'm a terrible student these days because I am so critical and I have very high standards. Uh, I'm always pleased when someone meets or exceeds them. I just wish I knew that before I took their workshop or uh, watched their, their video. And then the, the last tip, which is such a good reminder for this whole series, is you're, you're never done to borrow a sports You got to watch on the tone of it. <laughs> the tone of you're never done is very challenging. It can be challenging, but yeah. It depends where you are. You're never done. <laughs> see it as a constant challenge. Uh, but to take a, a, a loathed sports metaphor, I think of, I don't play golf, but you see it really people in, in advanced years playing golf and they're not, uh, age is not necessarily a positive there because you keep sort of, puttering and checking and improving. And I see that as equivalent to the, the teaching role that you're always uh, improving, revising, because even if you feel like you've got a, a good grasp on things, the world keeps changing and the context mm -hmm. for learning does too. Mm -hmm. Well said. I'm just going to add to number two, which is, you know, being the role that you are teaching if you're an instructional designer seeking to be an instructional designer or seeking to do faculty development to also teach during that time. So you know what it's like to teach. And uh, it's, I think it's gathering empathy and um, you know having the perspective of what your role is to support. So I think I, I take that away too. All right, well, thanks so much for joining us. I thought this was a fun one. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis, and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.